Hello and welcome to Reformed Podmatics, a weekly podcast hosted by Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. This podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Reformed Podmatics. I am Pastor Zach. And I am Pastor Lucas. And today, as you can all see, we are actually finally sitting down to have our conversation about Synod 2023. Uh, It's been an interesting past few weeks uh, in the Christian Reformed Church of North America as we have had our annual Synod. That's something that takes place in our denomination once every year. Other Presbyterian and Reformed denominations may have different ways of going about it, but we do it once every summer in June. Typically, it's in Grand Rapids at the campus of Calvin University, but it can be in other places. And so with us today, we have uh, Pastor Patrick and Pastor Dave, who are the delegates from Classes Central California, who are Classes, our regional group of churches in the CRC, sent as our designated uh, delegates to go and participate in Synod. I should also say Synod, for those who don't know, Synod is the Christian Reformed Church's General Assembly. It's sort of the highest court of authority in the Christian Reformed Church. And it's, as I said, something that happens once a year where a lot of the business of the church gets dealt with in the most important way. So it's a lot of the biggest conversations that are taking place, whether that's uh, financial matters going on or even theological decisions that we as a church are working through. That is what Synod is all about. And so there's always a good bit riding on the shoulders of Synod, and there's a good bit of responsibility and weightiness, some years more so than others, from what I've heard at least, uh, I can remember being at Synod last year and having some people tell me that they've been to a lot of quote-unquote inconsequential synods, but how last year was a very consequential one, and it turns out this year, uh, 2023, has been a very consequential synod as well. And so we are delighted to have here, uh, Lucas and I are delighted to have Patrick and Dave. So I should turn it over to you guys. Patrick, you've been on the show before, but I'll start with you. Why don't you introduce yourself, tell us where you're from, and yeah, we can go to Dave after that. Yeah, so I'm, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm Pastor Patrick. Um, I'm the lead pastor at Emmanuel CRC here in Ripon. I was actually raised in the Central Valley here and feel very blessed to pastor here in Ripon. My wife is from Ripon as well. She went to Ripon Christian, uh, grew up at a formerly CRC church across town here. <laughs> and uh, and so I feel very blessed to be here. Um, I ministered with Pastor Dave for six years uh, as the youth pastor there. And, um, yeah, this was my first year going to Synod, and uh, thought it was a, an incredible experience. So, Yeah, very cool. We're excited to have you back, and, yeah, we can turn it over to, to Dave. He can give us a little bit about who you are, Dave. This yeah. is your first time on, right? This is. I've okay. never been on before, so thanks, Zach, for having me on. Uh, yeah, Pastor Dave Vandermulen from the Esclon Christian Reformed Church. I've been there now 20 years. Uh, first 12 years as the youth pastor, and then the last eight as the lead pastor. And uh, born and raised in the Chicago suburbs, but really I'm getting to the point in my life where almost half of it has been here, at least for my conscious life. So <laughs> getting more and more ingrained in the culture here. Yeah. And so it's one thing we should mention, and this goes back to our first episode together, Lucas, that we did a few weeks ago, is that 
the three of us are CRC outsiders. Mm. Dave, you're yeah. from the CRC. You are our resident CRC pastor. Oh, great. I have the responsibility. <laughs> you grew yeah. up yeah. in the CRC. Uh, so, yeah. And you're taking Pastor Mark's spot now as our fellow Chicago okay, man. Okay, there we go. Yeah, born and raised in Chicago <laughs> suburbs. And uh, one thing I just should say, I had the privilege of both going in 2022 and 2023. Yeah. So it was kind of neat to have both of those Synod experiences together. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, And so just a little bit of a background on Synod 2023 this year for uh, those who don't know. Things in the CRC have been heating up for the past, I don't know, six or seven years. I got here into the CRC at this church, which is my first church in 2017. And it seems that we've been a church in the midst of an identity crisis ever since my arrival, trying to figure out who we are as a denomination, uh, what sort of path we want to go down, what trail we want to blaze. Um, there in many ways has been sort of a, a crossroads moment, I would say, in our denomination. Uh, to put it in a very, I guess, uh, blunt way or just kind of a crude way, I could say, I think it seems like our con- our denomination's conversation over the last several years has been, are we going to be a confessional body or are we going to be a mainline church kind of body? Um, and so... One of the big questions along with this, like with every other denomination, has been the questions surrounding human sexuality. This is something we've covered here before on Reformed Pragmatics over the past couple of years. Um, And you can go back to last year's episodes that we did on Synod 2022 if you want to hear more about that. But Synod uh, 2019, there was a a report given from the Human Sexuality Committee, which was put together in 2016. They finally put their report out in late 2019, after Synod 2019, and it was supposed to be decided on at Synod 2020. The Human Sexuality Report was uh, a writing of about, I think, 178 pages, if I remember correctly, and it was a committee report, a study report that was done on sexuality, um, and essentially the report, just to summarize, took what we might call a traditional view of human sexuality uh, in that it would have seen um, homosexual behavior activity as sinful. And so uh, in 2020, that was supposed to be decided on, but with the pandemic, that eventually got pushed off to Synod 2022. So there was a, there was a lot riding on the line last year at Synod. And so that was sort of the big question last year at Synod is, are we going to uphold this human sexuality report and the traditional view, the view that the CRC has historically uh, held to, uh, at least on paper? And so that decision was made uh, by about a 72 or 73 percent vote to uphold that teaching and to uh, make that teaching not only something that we affirmed, but uh, a teaching that we deemed confessional uh, in accordance with Heidelberg Catechism question and answer 108 with the word unchastity, which we all agreed on in that vote that that word in unchastity includes uh, all sorts of deviant sexual behavior and including homosexual uh, same-sex behavior. Uh, and so writing it now into Senate 2023, one of the big questions was, are we going to uphold that? And if we are going to uphold that in Senate 2023, what will that mean for office bearers and churches that have expressed uh, a a conviction or a position that differs from that traditional view, a view that we we can consider the affirming view? Um, Others might call it other, other terms, but we'll, we'll use that, that term in this episode, the affirming view. 
on homosexuality. And so that's a little bit of the background. Now, that isn't to say that that's all that Synod was about this year. There were Every year at Synod, there's all sorts of matters that come into conversations that our denomination has to deal with. There's relatively minor things like new seminary professors. That, that's not a minor thing by any means, but uh, sometimes it can feel minor in comparison to other things. Uh, there was a whole conversation about a code of conduct, which uh, our s- denomination has been thinking through whether or not office bearers, including elders, deacons, and pastors, uh, need to sign or not sign. And so, I don't know, maybe if one of you wants to give a little bit of a report on that. I'm I'm still a little unclear as to how that happened and what, what went down with that, so I'd like to hear uh, your report there. Um but there was, there was a conversation on one of the days at Senate about ecclesiastical marriage versus state marriage, and that was interesting. So I'm just I'm using these all as different examples to say that Senate is talking about all sorts of things. There's not any one thing that Senate spends all of its time talking about. It is a week-long meeting, I should say, and there's all sorts of matters that have to get addressed throughout the week. And so there's a lot of business to get to, and... Well, this year, not all of the business was gotten to. And so that's part of the conversation that we can we can jump into as well. Um, and so, yeah, that's a sort of a little bit of a background picture. I, I think uh, what we are hoping this episode can be is sort of uh, me and Lucas will take on the position of the interested layperson and try to be peppering our two delegates with questions about their time and their experience. And so I'll ask my first question, and then Lucas, you can you can jump in with yours. My first question is, and I don't care who goes first, uh, what was your general experience, and uh, what was your general reaction at the end of the week to how things went? Um, so this is my first synod, and um, I'm also from outside the CRC. And uh, I watched last year's synod with um, the, the first time I ever actually really paid much attention to a synod. And so I was really excited to come. And uh, my overall reaction was, uh, you know, Calvin was a beautiful place to be. Uh, yeah. the, the people were great. Uh, it, it was interesting sort of uh, getting to know people throughout the week and kind of wondering like, okay, well, I know there's two big camps here. I wonder, I had a great breakfast with this group of guys from... <laughs> yeah you know, somewhere in Canada, and I wonder where they're at on yeah, all this stuff. you can't help but size people up a little bit. Yeah, you kind of have wondering... You don't want that, to do that. You don't though. want to, um, but, but that's always kind of lurking in the background. With, I felt like with all the conversations I had going in, and so um, the, the people who kind of saw things more of the way, um, you know, I think what Scripture has to say on a lot of these big topics, I sort of found myself drawn to them just sort of relationally. Mm-hmm. Um, uh you know, in the interim, as, as we got to know each other. Um, but I loved the committee work. One of the things to, to point out is uh, with Synod, there, there was like a 900-page agenda, including the supplements, and, and you can't have 180 people churn through that big of an agenda. And so what mm-hmm. they do is on Thursday and Friday, they break it up into into committees, and the committees process their work together. And uh, and then on Monday morning, the committees bring their, uh, ideally, bring all their work to the floor, and we can begin to work through it as a body. And I loved the committee work. It was a yeah, huge was blessing to, to be... We were in a room with no windows. Uh, Which committees were you in? We should also... Yeah. Uh, so I was on that. committee eight. Uh, okay. That was the committee that was deciding 
the nature and use of a gravamen, hmm. basically. So the for church order committee. The church order committee, yeah. If you're able to, are you able to define a gravamen quickly for those who don't know what that is? Uh, so a gravamen, I think it's like Latin, and it means something along the lines of a grievance. Um, it's actually called a confessional difficulty gravamen, which would be you would have some sort of difficulty with the confessions, and so you'd file that gravamen as a way of uh, processing your difficulty in, in, with integrity. Uh, and then there's a confessional revision gravamen, which would be you actually believe something is wrong in our confessions, and you'd want to follow through and have that that changed. Yeah, we can come back to the gravamen thing. Did you have another question? We can come back to okay. it. Okay, yeah. because <laughs> I think that that's a whole co- part okay. of the conversation yeah. that yeah. we should probably get into. Um, and I think that that's, that's something that's important for us to address, I think, here. Uh, but yeah, any other things on experience or your... F- feelings yeah afterwards and, and and then and then it felt like when we hit the floor it, it was like it was a different it was a different experience hmm. so it went from this experience with the the committees which was very intimate and personal and very neat and there's about 20 25 yeah 20 people in the committee or so uh and including advisors there was a, a young adult advisor an ethnic advisor a faculty advisor a staff advisor uh and and yeah, that was a very awesome experience um, just in terms of you just felt like you got to get to know people. So even when you disagreed with them, there was a sense of like, you aren't just a person who has a different idea than me, who I don't care about. It was, you're somebody who I've gotten to know. And, and I and I do want to persuade you out of love, you know, um, and uh, or even be persuaded by you, you know. Um, and so, but then once we hit Senate floor, it really felt like all of a sudden we were in like a political environment. Yeah. You know, I felt like I was watching, uh, you know, C-SPAN. C-SPAN. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so it just really switched, you know, and, and even, even in my own heart, I could tell, um, hmm. it, it switched because when people would get up and, and say things that, that I didn't think were, were true or right or fair or good, uh, the way my heart responded to people like that in the committee uh, was different. I, I, I even felt like I even sunk into a lesser um, version of myself uh, on the <laughs> Senate floor. It was like it really kind of pulls out a different a different part of you. It's in that. the relational versus the more abstract sort of yeah. parts of our yeah. humanity. Yeah. Exactly. And then you asked how, how I left. Well, my, my work was, the, my committee's work was the one that got punted to next year. Yeah. And so um, I, I left, uh, I mean, I'm going to use this word, it might be dramatic, but I was devastated. Yeah. yeah, that that we that we didn't get through it, that we didn't get a chance to to talk through it, uh, you know, on the floor. Even if we had voted, um, as we were about to do on a certain issue, um, I still would have been bummed because I I, th- I think that issue did deserve to More have its time on the floor. Yeah. How? When did you guys turn in your work as a committee? Usually, as you said, it's it's sort of ideally supposed to be done by Saturday night. Uh, but I don't think Committee yeah. 8 turned in their work until, was it Monday or Tuesday? Uh, no. So I, I was, um, my committee worked late Saturday night, and then we worked um, from 7 at night until 11 o'clock at night on Sunday night. And then we came in and worked again from 7 in the morning until 1230 on Monday morning before we were done. And then Dave's mm-hmm. committee. Yeah, we were, so first of all, let me back up a little bit. Um in this one, when you think about particular focuses, a lot of the focus ended up on what was Committee 8 and my committee, which was Committee 7. Uh, we had a lot of the questions, overtures. It was all entirely overtures, some 36 of them, I think, two communications technically. But 
uh, about re-examining for different reasons what was done the previous year, mm-hmm. uh, reinterpreting things, uh, evaluating how things were done with the process, talking about delaying some of those decisions, giving a local option, redefining certain things, uh, and all of which is to say seven and eight, uh, the Human Sexuality Committee, the one I was on, and eight, the one that Patrick was on, carried some pretty heavy work. And that was one of the comparisons to last year. Last year, I was on the Education and Candidacy Committee. The work we did there, you could start easily. Uh, There was lots of reports to get. It was fun. We had nothing except difficult stuff. And so Mm -hmm. to where we were, yes, we worked all through the weekend. Uh, We, our committee took all of Sunday off. But put us behind on Monday where that was where we were finally getting to the point and where we had a unified report up through Saturday evening. Basically on Saturday evening into Monday morning, we realized we were going to have a majority and a minority report on one particular issue, the issue of confessional status and of the definitions we came up with last year. So we didn't get that done until Monday afternoon. So you... I think if I remember correctly, I didn't hear your guys' names on roll call Monday morning. So Monday morning, both of our committees were not in the plenary session, the big synod floor session. Mm -hmm. We were still in committee work. And then we took lunch off, and I think it was the evening, Monday evening, when we finalized both of the majority and the minority reports. You may have finished by lunchtime, I think. Yeah, so I was finished by lunch, but our reporter and chair were still... um, trying to get the final version of our document mm-hmm. edited and, and uploaded. And I think that those guys missed um, the afternoon session on Monday too. Okay. But it was, I think it was, and this is just off of memory, I think it wasn't until Tuesday morning and Tuesday afternoon when our reports got submitted and publicly distributed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I remember waiting and watching for those to pop up on the website. So all of this, for anybody who's listening, all this was live streamed on YouTube, and it was also it's something you could follow along with. And as soon as the reports are live, they are online for the world to see. Anybody can go in and read them. And so there was a little bit of buzz. I don't think Synod has ever created this kind of buzz online up until the last two years. And now through the work of Paul Vanderclay, there's actually been lots of people outside the CRC who are watching and really interested in what's going on and there's been all sorts of conversations even on youtube i don't know if you guys have watched any of these um is that the rando guys the randos yeah, yeah randos united so there was mm-hmm. a couple of panels and there was a crc pastor named moises pacheco on on a couple of those uh, but most of the other people are not even not informed not even protestant many of them a lot are one Catholic, of the guys i think was a jew yeah there was a jewish and guy yeah Okay. And it's interesting to hear their takes, and it's just it's crazy to me that the CRC is being talked about by people outside the CRC. We are uh, really kind of a drop in the bucket in terms of American evangelical or Protestantism, and so it's yeah, it's it's interesting that the conversation do, has. has do you come think those conversations wouldn't have been happening if it wasn't for the decisions made, especially on the the human sexuality report last year? If yeah, we had gone on I think the affirming gotten, side, and you think that. The conversation would have ceased then. I, I think that just it's just that the conversations are hot button issues in our in our culture, and so people are watching Senate in a way that they've never cared to watch before. Uh, and I think that um, things are really happening in the CRC in a way that I'm not sure that they've happened before, where uh, there's serious talk of church discipline and 
breaking of covenants. And so it seems to me that it's a, I guess to use a lack of a better word, it's just a more dramatic uh, time in the CRC. So I think that's part of what's leading people to And to it's watch. probably less of talking about the CRC, and it's just this is an issue everywhere. Sure. This is yeah. every... And, and so people can watch it, even if they're not from the CRC, and they can be very interested. People were in paying it. attention to what was yeah. going to be happening in the Methodist denomination, yeah, so, yeah, and, and news exactly. articles were written about that. And so uh, it's the issues, right? Yeah. Every denomination... not Yeah, almost every denomination is dealing with this in different ways. Yeah. Yeah, so you've spoken a little bit now, Patrick, about your experience on the tail end of Synod. I'd be curious to hear Dave talk about your experience and your... How did you feel at the end of, of Yeah, Synod? so one of the things, as I said, it was really interesting comparing these two years is putting being put on one of those weightier committees, if I will, and that is in no way to diminish the work that everybody else did. It's all hard work. And uh, one of the things I do enjoy about the Synod experience, it's a lot of agenda stuff, but it's so interesting to read through yeah. all of the preparation that goes through it, taking notes on everything. I committed myself both years. I was going to read every page, hmm. and I did. And I know my secretary and some of my coworkers, or <laughs> they were, you know, I'd, oh, I can't believe this, or oh, I like this, but I'm not sure. And they processed it with me, which was really kind of neat. But everybody does a lot of work, but in particular this year, when you get on some of those weightier ones, it was it was tough. Yeah. I mean, you you carry this burden you feel. And I talked yeah. with my committee trying to say, like, hey, we can't carry that burden, but you also can't help but feel like you're making a really important decision. And when all of our committee work was being discussed, finally when it got done, hmm. I literally wept because it just like this weight that we were carrying just felt heavy hmm. and to finally process it and get through it, it like it was a release yeah having said that that's where especially for people like patrick and committee eight that never got that experience i feel for them i mean they they like we said they poured themselves into their reports and were working so hard to try to be very careful about what they were going to submit to the floor of synod hmm. And all of that work kind of got punted, as Patrick yeah. said. Here, we're going to write a letter to next year, yeah. and that letter's going to carry the same weight. And you know uh, there's going to be a lot of overtures trying to sway those decisions because mm -hmm. people are going to have a whole year to consider mm -hmm. it and think through it and process it. And, and now know. they've seen it too. So the whole denomination is now thinking exactly. about those recommendations. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, so that adds a whole other wrinkle to the whole conversation. And so having felt that release myself of like, okay, yeah. we, we did the work. It was felt done. I really do sympathize for eight. And I'll be honest, I don't recall. Maybe we, we had to leave because we had flights headed out. Mm -hmm. I never heard a thank you for the work that they did. I never heard a public apology for not getting to the work that they did. And I, I felt really bad for that. Mm -hmm. Having been on one of the harder ones, I really struggled with committee eight to say, they should have been recognized a little bit better yeah. for the neglect that was that ha ended up happening. Yeah, I can remember watching on Thursday and thinking, I wonder if they'll just all decide, let's just stay late, let's miss our flights, we'll all fly home mm -hmm. on Saturday or something, and we'll stick it out. I would have been open to that. <laughs> yeah, it just would have been really probably expensive and costly for the denomination to rebook flights. <laughs> I, I don't know, like most people drive, actually, I found out last year. I, we in California, we fly out, but most people, it seemed like I talked to, 
drive. So I feel like it could have been done, but hey, what do I know? You might not have had a quorum and you would have lost. Some people would have had to have left for various reasons. I think it was an impossible hmm. scenario. I, I think yeah. what happened, um, because we were so behind on the work and um, and couldn't get through it, what happened was what had to happen. Yeah. So I, that, I told you I'd let you go next, Lucas. I'm sorry, but I'm hey, just no, going to apologize. I'm going to back <laughs> things up a little bit too and ask maybe a more important question. What did happen at Senate? And that was that was my question. <laughs> yeah. So there we go. Maybe we should do almost yeah. like a weekly run through and you guys, Dave and Patrick, you guys can sort of banter through this together yeah. and well, Lucas and I will will be quiet. And in that question, I'd like to know what do you think is the the most important things that you talked about, decided on? And, and what direction did those decisions take? Yeah. So give us your audio report because I know you might you you wrote an article for your church, Dave. I don't know if you're going to do that uh, for Escalon, but give us an audio report on Synod, the rundown of the week, uh, in terms of what business decisions or what uh, what important matters were discussed and what was the votes and things like that. Um. Well, I. I... <laughs> In terms of like important things, uh, I would say the 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 COD was important. Uh, the, not the COD. The um, code it? of conduct. Code of conduct was yeah, important. Yeah. The ecclesiastical marriage was interesting and important. Uh, there was a moment with uh, Scott Vanderplug. The, the evangelism. The evangelism strategy, thing, yeah. which mm-hmm. was uh, it was a powerful moment. I, I actually think the moment itself might have been more impactful than even the decisions that we made coming out of the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, and then, yeah, then it was the homosexuality thing, and then those are, to me would be the the big yeah. highlights. Uh, then there, of course, there was budgets and reports, uh, and seminary perf- appointments, right? Yeah, seminary professors were appointed, uh, and it, it, you really you realize that, like, hey, they've done a ton of work to to vet these two professors. By the time they get to yeah. synod floor, um, I don't want to say we're rubber stamping them, but. But there's a sense where they, they they know when they bring these people that they're substantive quality candidates, yeah. uh, and they expect them to do well, and I would say both of them did. Yeah, yeah. I think you you talk about the two big issues of the two committees that we were on, but some of the things that come out of this, the code of conduct is going to be something that, that's going to have a lasting impact in our denomination. The conversations that got a little long, I think, setting up a task force that's going to look at whether or not you can define a virtual only church if that thing can such a thing can exist hmm. uh, that's going to be an interesting conversation in the future as we continue to explore that uh, like I said I think we spent too much time trying to do the task force work on the floor of synod mm-hmm. instead of just deciding that we want to send one but that's going to have I think some hmm. interesting impact um, some of the other things that we looked at was some changes to the delegation of synod. Hmm. Uh, not right now, you have to have a four people: a pastor, a elder, a deacon, and then another one of any of those three. The and other, <laughs> the other candidate. I've been the other candidate twice. So, <laughs> and most often, just because of timing and work, it makes. Yeah. Well, I think most of them send two ministers and an elder and a deacon, mm-hmm. uh, but it's hard. I mean, young people with families that have to take time off of work, and that's been a difficulty. There's been yeah. uh, classes that only send three or two because they can't find the delegate, so they gave a little bit more flexibility, and there was a longer conversation about that, and that might have some impacts uh, moving forward as well, all of mm-hmm. which is to say, 
even beyond these issues, part of the reason we didn't get done is there was a lot to cover. Yeah. And there was a lot of things that ended up happening that uh, we worked our way through. Yeah. So there was the code of conduct. That's something you guys have mentioned. I'm actually confused as to what happened with the code of conduct. Is it something that all office bearers will have to sign, or is it was it only recommended? I could go back and read the banners. No, no actual signature. So you're not going to be okay. putting ink to paper on it. Okay. However, when you uh, when it's in the Book of Church Order now, so it's going to be an appendix to the Book of Church Order, okay. uh, that when you are a uh, an officer in the church, which would be a pastor, elder, deacon, or a commissioned pastor, um, you are you are bound by it. Um, okay. And where I was still even a little confused um, was uh, the the nature of that binding, because um, there was a sense where the committee was communicating to us on the floor that the the real um, group that would uh, uphold the code of conduct was going to be the local consistory or the c- council at the church. Yeah. Which I think is I think is is wise, yet at the same time, uh, safe church or the uh, you know there's some denominational agency who who is still there to to either walk through it with the council or or take the report and and I was I was still unsure uh, how much power they had and and it even seems like they're even suggesting that that that's the group that you, that a, a code of conduct violation should be reported to which kind of makes sense if on the council is the person who you believed abused you yeah. uh, it makes sense to have a third party group to go to um yeah i guess that's a my meandering sort of incoherent answer to that question and what was the code of council again we should ask that question yeah. for anyone listening the code of conduct. Code of conduct. Yes. Sorry, not code so of conduct. In some ways, and this is some of the debate. Uh, in a lot of ways, statewide or even in many local churches, you have your own policies to protect individuals. I think this mainly came out of a desire to protect people from abuse of power, for mm-hmm. example. And so it lays out uh, how you're supposed to interact with people uh, in counseling sessions, how you're supposed to handle your finances, how you conduct yourself in different areas and venues of life. And on a positive side, quite frankly, I am optimistic and hopeful. It really should not impact most ministry work because we hope and trust that the vast majority of everybody is already going to be in compliance with these issues. So yeah. that's the the one side. but Which is issue- actually an argument against it as well. Exactly. So, but having said that, because it, it the, the stuff if you're living by biblical principles, if you yeah. are living in con, of affirmation with our covenant of office bearers, mm-hmm. this should be how you conduct yourself. And we have to watch videos by state mandate. We have policies within our local congregations, and this feels in some ways like another layer. And it, I don't think it is until we have ex- issues where people start violating it that we're actually going to find out, okay, where does this yeah. truly lie in terms of how do we follow up on this and how do we implement it? And, and who's the person who's empowering that implementation? Is it really going to be the consistory? And the other yeah. thing, too, that I struggled with is the, the terms harm and abuse are used yeah, in there. Yeah, that was my struggle with And it. those terms are very elastic and vague. Yeah. And, and so I... Uh, but it, 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 at the end of the day, some guys that I thought were pretty solid that were there were on the committee and were in favor of it. And, and I... 
you know, when it when it passed, I, I thought to myself, a kind of what Dave said that it's probably not gonna, you know, have all that on the ground impact unless somebody violates it. Yeah. And then I thought, you know, these guys who seem pretty thoughtful and solid were all in support of it because it was a unanimous from that committee to to pass it yeah um interesting yeah there was, yeah. No, there was no minority report no minority report, report. yeah, yeah. Well, so i do think we're not going to really know until yeah. there's some test cases to say hey where is the authority behind this and yeah. who is the one that's going to be responsible for following through and what does the chain look like when you don't get satisfactory answers on each one of those links and it'll be a little while before we actually figure that out i yeah. think and how do we determine the objectivity of the um of the Abuse, accusation yeah. Yeah. yeah so that'll be an interesting thing do you have any questions on that or not on that particular okay. yeah okay. they covered it so, good we can go on to the evangelism thing, I think. Yeah. Uh, to talk yeah. about Scott Vanderplug's yeah. um, thing. Now, Paul Vanderclay beat us to it, made a video uh, on it that <laughs> night, like a 45-minute uh, sort of explanation of what took place and okay. how amazing it was and how happy he was about it. Uh, but, yeah, run us through that. Why was that an exciting highlight for many people? So it was really interesting. Senate? So the way you get things to the floor is you write an overture. And Scott's classes came and uh, the thing which with is the design, uh, southeast southeast so it's like the florida usa and exactly yeah. mostly in florida and had written an overture saying we're noticing in our denomination an ongoing decline in membership and we need to figure out why and what we can do to stop it most notably in reaching out evangelism planting new churches and seeking to intentionally grow there's a lot of reasons in my own mind of why there's a decline in the denomination, mm-hmm. much, I think, addressed and connected to the issues that we're discussing. However, in writing that overture, which is, by the way, the second time he submitted it, I don't mm-hmm. recall if it was 2019, the last time he had written this, but he kind of amplified the message and said, hey, in 2019, this sort of got pushed to the side and said, oh, yeah, we'll look at this, but the numbers keep going down. Mm-hmm. And so he had some pretty solid report saying like, hey, we need to pay attention to this and need to come up with a unified strategy for evangelism that is supported and encouraged throughout the denomination. And, and kept in front of us, too, because one of his things was that, is that they needed to report back at each synod about how that was going. Yeah. Hmm. And in some ways, what I thought was interesting is prior to synod, we got reports from the agencies that are tasked in many ways in the denomination, Resonate Global Missions, mm-hmm. and I, one other one, I, I don't know if it was Thrive in general, but we're negative about this, saying we're doing, we're trying to do this work, we're paying attention to this, our, have our efforts going, and sort of we're saying don't accede to this. And that was the recommendation that came out of committee and when the recommendation is unified, coming out of committee to either accede to something or dismiss a overture, you've got a long road ahead of you to try to undo yeah. the recommendation of the committee. Yeah. The committee work has to be voted down. A new motion has to be made from the floor and action has to be taken. So there's a there's an uphill battle in that. But Scott wasn't willing to really to let it go. And so he pushed to say, let's look at this. And after we voted down the recommendation, he submitted another new motion that was very, this was technical because at first they almost were going to rule it out of order, thinking it was too close to the overture that had been submitted. Uh, but he 
I guess, was close enough to changing it enough uh, to where they allowed the motion to come on the floor, and it did pass with some fairly uh, vocal support to say, mm. no, we want a unified, ongoing, focused effort of evangelism within our denomination, and this is something that we need to pay attention to. And so partially because it is an uphill battle, partially because, again, in all of these discussions, and I really appreciated Scott's heart, as a Mm -hmm. church, this is where we should be doing the work. This is what we should be focusing on. And that's what it was encouraging to hear people say, yeah, we affirm Mm -hmm. that. Yeah, people people 100% agreed with him. And I think there was two things. One, I I think the membership decline is obvious, objective facts. We we can't just ignore that. It's not just us, but we need to address it for for ourselves, yeah. Right. And two, uh, caring about evangelism and discipleship is not a hard... (laughs) Not a hard sell. Yeah, that right? was the interesting thing for me. Right. And and three, uh, <laughs> I've never met Scott before. I'm actually going through his 222 Disciple course myself personally right now. Hmm. Uh, and That's how much you appreciated his uh, his synod moment? Well, I didn't even know he was going to synod when I started going through oh, the course. Um, but I, I appreciate the course a lot um, hmm. because I, I he, he kind of sets up this idea at the beginning of like, hey, you could... Uh, you could promote discipleship and evangelism at your church like you know, for the next 20 years. He's like, but what if you slowed down and you intentionally discipled two people? And then you had them intentionally disciple two people. Now you have exponential evangelism. So it's, it's going to feel like you're not doing anything at first, but then five, ten years down the road, the effectiveness of it is going to be off the charts. Hmm. That's actually what sold me on going through his class, and that's the introductory video that you watch. So I I am promoting his class, 222 <laughs> Disciple. Uh, just All right. type it in on the internet, and it will take you to it. Um, and the other thing that Scott, I'd never met the guy, but he's got he's got gravitas, yeah, mm. right? So there's some people who get up and speak, and it's just there's something very weighty about mm-hmm. them as a being. Some people take to the synod floor differently than other yeah. people. That's for sure. Yeah. But it wasn't there. I was a classmate of his at uh, seminary. And got the opportunity to know him. And everyone knew then that he was going to do some good things in our Mm. denomination. And Hmm. he stood out. I think uh, when we did our internships, you got to like ask for who you want. And it was whatever Scott (laughs) wasn't going to take that (laughs) everyone else had as an option. So, (laughs) yeah, that's that's an interesting thing. Were you going to say something? Okay. So, uh, that reminds me of just my seminary experience and being mostly adjacent to the PCA. And most everybody in the PCA, a big conversation is missions and evangelism. Coming into the CRC, that it's something that that's not really been a, as much of a conversation, at least not that I've heard. And it needs to be. And it needs to be. Yeah. And so when I heard that, I was kind of like, well, yeah, duh. Although I could sympathize with the committee who was sort of dismissive towards it. It was, it almost is like, okay, yeah, denominational decline. I've heard all this before. We need to do something about making sure we get the numbers back up. It almost seemed like it was too numbers oriented, butts and seats sort of a thing. But I, I don't think that really was the heart of it. It was, we need to really confront this issue head on really soberly look it right in the face and think through how we as a denomination can reach out, can evangelize, can share the faith. And I think he even said something like the the ship's not coming anymore or something like that. People aren't coming over from the Netherlands anymore that the way that they we used to just sort of count on that. As a denomination, we need to realize that... And there's These a lot numbers behind aren't all of that. There's a lot of things about the decline of the denomination that's outside of the control of a lot of the church. 
uh, just in terms of demographics in our nation and where people live and how affordable homes are in different places and what does farming look like. And so there's a lot of things that we're not going to be able to address at all. But I think it's really helpful to just say, hey, as we're arguing about other things, let's not lose the heart of the mission of the church. And to keep that in front of ourselves, I think, was a really nice and in many ways a wonderful, yeah, like, this is what we're about. Yeah, it was an excel or an exciting celebratory moment. I think once that passed, mm. and so but it's not disconnected from all the other stuff. Exactly, and we because if to we that. can't be in agreement <laughs> on all that other stuff, yeah, then then it's hard to do the thing um, that that Scott was promoting. Um, so it was a cool moment to have both at this synod, mm. right? Because you had said it earlier, Zach, we're in an identity crisis. So when we say, hey, come join the Christian Reformed Church and what we're doing, and people, well, who is the Christian Reformed Church? And our answer is, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, it depends on which church you go to. It's going to be really hard to invite people on that journey. Yeah. Maybe flush that out just a little bit. Help help us to understand what is that identity crisis centered around and and look like. It's defining terms and trying to understand uh, what we actually believe. And some people are saying, hey, Hmm. I don't believe this or I'm not willing to define the term. So maybe help us to understand what you mean by identity crisis. So I think just a, just for time's sake, a broad sweeping sure. thing, I would say there's there's CRC churches that you go to, and they would look like a confessional Reformed church with an evening service and an organ and um, very traditional. There's other CRC churches that you'd go to, and they would look like basically your average non-denominational church. And there's other churches you'd go to that would be uh, more on the mainline side, where you would see some creative worship things, or maybe strange or absurd sort of worship, you know, ways of worshiping that are kind of in a sort of liturgy, but just kind of free and easy and doing whatever you wanted to do. Um, uh, And within that, there's kind of a theology that goes from like a more, uh, I didn't want to use these terms, but progressive on one end, all the way to conservative on the other end. Uh, And then then there's all different kinds of CRCs in between. So, and who are we? Are we confessional church that, that believes the doctrines and that's what unites us? Are we a historical ethnic Dutch church who has this rich heritage, and is that what unites us? Um, or are we evangelicals who, uh, who you know, yeah. are part of Americana? Is that what unites us? Mm-hmm. But that gets to the heart of where we were with some of those issues, because at least on paper, what we say is what binds us together is our creeds and confessions. Yeah. Yes. And the three forms of unity, it's yeah. literally in that language. But when you can't agree on what those things are saying, what they mean, and to what level I must uh, uh, affirm everything in there, well, mm-hmm. then your identity gets lost. Mm-hmm. And this goes back with a number of other things. I mean, when you become, when you have a local option with the women in office issue, I will say that, you know, that's been able to work better than I thought it was going to. But at the same time, you've got churches with the same name that conduct themselves very differently. Mm -hmm. When you have a local option about uh, children at the communion table, once again, you have the same named churches that are conducting themselves very differently. And then when we get into the issues that we're dealing with in 2022 around human sexuality, that seems like another level of you have some who are putting people 
potentially would put people in a category of those needing discipline and others that are celebrating and elevating them to positions of authority. And that becomes a huge difference when you say, like, mm-hmm. so what do you believe on this issue? And when you can't say, well, this is what we believe, but the answer is, I don't know. It depends on which church you go to. That becomes, and people don't know who to look to for the answers mm-hmm. either. Mm-hmm. Because one part of our denomination is saying this, uh, our magazine is saying that, uh, the college is saying this, and the seminary is saying that, and the synod is saying this, and it's... And my pastors and elders are saying different things amongst themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's yeah. even, too, with the evangelism and discipleship thing. Well, do, do I believe evangelism and discipleship is a, is a means of grace ministry, where I focus on the preaching of the Word, the sacraments, uh, or do I believe it's this outreach ministry, where I... Uh, where I go out and, uh, you know, do, maybe we got to get away from this church thing and we got to be more, you know, and all, all of those different understandings of, of how we should even do the work that Christ has given us to do exists within our denomination. So if we even, if we even settle on the uh, confessional question and we say, yes, we're a confessional church and that's who we are, uh, then there's still practical realities of what that looks like on the ground that we, that we still would be disagreeing on too. So. Yeah. Um, I think we should get into then, because we haven't really gotten into it yet, what happened with 7 and 8? Yeah. What happened with those decisions, which took place mostly on Wednesday and on Thursday, the two final days of Synod? Um, for anybody who doesn't know, Synod ends at like, what, 3 p.m. on Thursday, yep. on the final Thursday? So it starts on the previous Thursday, Thursday and Friday. Well, everybody gets there on Thursday, on week, the first part of the week. Friday and Saturday, it's advisory committees, and then Monday really is the beginning where the the the, the plane starts to take off the runway a little bit, um, or maybe it's the reverse. Maybe it starts to land. <laughs> uh, and well. so, so Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then Thursday, the final day, that is really where Synod is doing Synod things. And so usually, at least this is my experience now with last year, the big conversations that everybody's kind of waiting for happen towards the end is that normally how they how they've done it uh, and what happened i don't want to get i don't want to miss that question what happened with seven and eight so i'll start with seven because we actually dealt with that one yeah. and i can there is like a one minute summary that you can go to is seven was tasked with dealing with all of these overtures almost every one of which says there's something about last year's decisions on the human sexuality report we didn't like Mm -hmm. let's reconsider it let's redefine it let's look at the process let's soften some of the language and ultimately what did happen was all of the decisions of 2022 were reaffirmed and so there's the short answer, yeah. is uh, the ultimate outcome of everything was, in essence, we said no to almost all of those that said we'd like to redefine, rechange, reevaluate what was done yeah. the year before. And Committee 8 was basically everything uh, in response to what was done the year before. So if, if we say that uh, homosexual sex is a sin and that, and that that has confessional status and has always been the teaching... Of, uh, of the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer 108, uh, then that necessarily means those who are office bearers in the CRC who, who do not believe that doctrine are out of line with the covenant of office bearers. Uh, they're in serious and, uh, you know, uh, I don't, deviant, uh, deviance from the confessions or something like that. And therefore, they need to be disciplined in some way. So, yeah. eight was dealing with the discipline uh, for those who are out of line uh, with the decision from last year, uh, which the most 
you know, prominent name in that list is the Neyland Avenue CRC that ordained the uh, same-sex, uh, uh, the, the deacon and the same-sex marriage. And then, uh, so there's the discipline of Neyland, and then there's also the issue of the Gravamen. This is when we get back to Gravamina. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, if, I can, if I can file a confessional difficulty gr- Gravamen uh, with my counsel, and it never has to leave my counsel, and they judge that, that that's an okay position for me to have and still serve as an office bearer, then essentially I'm able to take an exception from the confessions indefinitely, uh, and uh, and then I'm basically, you know, have a back door out of yeah, the decision. Yeah, you're ministering in good conscience, although you hold a difference of opinion from our stated beliefs mm. that bind us. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, so Presbyterians call them exceptions to the confession. Right. We call them gravamina for whatever reason. Yeah. Or gravamen, whatever. Right. Well, and Presbyterians have a, they have a confession that's a little more detailed, right? So they yeah. have it saying, you know, talking about the Sabbath, and, and they actually say you can't even have fun on the Sabbath, basically. <laughs> and so they, they have people, it's kind of built into their, I, I'm more familiar with the PCA, mm-hmm. but they have a, a good faith subscription, basically. And so there's certain, you know, uh, doctrines that, that, that people generally take exceptions to in, in the PCA. Uh, whereas our, our tradition has generally been a strict subscription, which means right. that you would everything. Af- affirm every doctrine that that our confessions teach. Uh, and so this this whole Gravamen thing, um, I mean, honestly, I didn't even know about it until last year uh, when when it all came out. Yeah. And and uh, there's sort of an understanding of what a Gravamen is, uh, sort of um, emerged out of the CRC and kind of the polity experts from Calvin. Uh, and they're the ones who uh, who codified—I don't want to say codified, but articulated—forged forged away. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not really sure how it emerged from them, but but sure. they're the ones who first, in my understanding, clearly articulated this idea of a confessional difficulty Grofman being goes some, back to the Bohr decision, right? Goes back to the Bo- yeah. Henry Bohr in 1970s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he he was struggling with the doctrine of uh, reprobation. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so he, he you know took it to his counsel, and, and forgive me if I get some of the details wrong here, but he took it to his counsel, and uh, they were like, well, you're the seminary professor. How are we supposed to help you? So they took it to the classes, eventually got to synod, and, and they realized that sometimes people would have uh, um, confessional difficulties. They'd have, they'd have something or some implication of the confessions mm-hmm. that, that they were wrestling with, even as office bearers, and so they created this thing of a confessional difficulty gravamen in order for them to be able to, in good conscience, still serve while they wrestle with this doctrine. And the real question is, was that intended to be an indefinite situation? Mm. Or was that intended to be something where they were given time to be able to wrestle through it? But because mm. we do have a strict subscription to our confessions, that they must necessarily come to a place where they, they resolve their difficulty, uh, either by coming back in line with the confessions um, resigning from office, um, hmm. or even potentially, uh, depending on the severity, being being deposed or disciplined. Well, it seems to me that there were two kind of gravamen that were sort of developed. I don't know when or how, but there was the confessional difficulty gravamen, and then there is the confessional revision gravamen, right? I think it was the same and time. So the, the, the first, the confessional difficulty, as far as I understand, is a a publicizing of the fact that I have a difficulty with the confessions and I would like help in coming around to agreeing with the confessions. But only with your counsel. So it wasn't supposed to be something that was public, actually. Okay, okay. It was supposed to be something, and actually says that in the Book of Church Order, it's supposed to be something kept private with your counsel. Okay. Um, but yeah, go on. And so 
intended in there as a sort of terminus that there will be an end point and that that that's end point the debate. will be exactly right. that's the debate and then the other one the confessional revision is saying i actually think that the confession is wrong and i want to seek for our church to revise it so that it can be in line with how i'm understanding scripture Nobody in on the affirming camp or in the affirming affirming camp is, as far as I know, seeking to uh, make a confessional revision gravamen. Right? Everybody's wanting to say, "I have a confessional difficulty. I'll just leave it at that. I'll make my exception to take my exception, and I will leave the confession to say what it says." Sort of. This is where the two things kind of crossed over a little bit, because there were some things submitted to Committee 7 that actually language-wise were using the language of gravamen that got given to us as overtures. And my understanding was that was a decision of the program committee with the advice of the staff of the denomination. And so they kind of said, hey, there's a lot of people arguing this or trying to do this, so we're not going to really call this a gravamen. We're going to process this as an overture. So one of the things kind of on the broader, if you don't mind me kind of backtracking a little bit with seven, (laughs) I gave you the five-minute answer. I'll get in a little bit more of the weeds. So when you break those down in terms of revising, revising the decisions, there were some that had questions about process which is to say, hey, this was a significant change in our minds. It should have required two synods to, one, uh, look at it and then affirm it the next year. And in many ways, we kind of said, well, because we're entertaining all of these overtures, by de facto, we are having another synod look at this. And we also evaluated, and you see the grounds in the different reports saying, you know, the process was the right process. There were no challenges to it at the time, and it did, the decisions that were made were in line with the authority that Synod has to make those decisions. Mm -hmm. So that was some of the things that we looked at. Uh, But going back to your thing, yeah, there were some that in many ways that as an overture, we're sort of saying we would like to change it. And that was some of the changes. Again, I thought in our committee... Some of the things we were going to spend a lot more time on, I anticipated, were issues like uh, we were asked to remove from the understanding of what's unchastity, homosexual sex. And I thought there was going to be more of a discussion on that. And there were some people that talked about it, but that we came as a unified report on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was many who said, well, let's delay implementation so we can figure out gravamen or those types of things and not entertain stuff and just resettle the, the the ground a little bit first and we said no we made the right decisions and we're going to move forward mm-hmm. with the implementation of those decisions yeah from last year i had made references to local options and there were several overtures that asked for the ability for a church or a classis to consider this teaching as optional and they could implement their own decisions on it and again as a unified voice in our report we said, no, uh, this is not like women in office where a denomination has said that there are two scriptural interpretations that are worthy of consideration, uh, so therefore there is no local option that is available. You cannot say that this is—I um, lost the language in my head for a moment there. Where we got stuck— can't agree to disagree. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hmm. For us, the, the, the turning point, the big crux was, is this confessional status or yeah. is this in the status of an interpretation of a confession yes, yeah. by Synod? And that's where we ended up with a minority and a majority report. I, I will confess 
no pun intended, uh, that I am still confused by. Well, it's circular. That sort of thing about because the even status confessionis versus interpretation of the... Con- well, because the interpretation is is that it has confessional status, you know, <laughs> so it's kind of in some ways both. And that's where... So, in looking at this and trying to study it really carefully, that was where the language is a little bit confusing because you mm-hmm. go back to Synod 1975 that sort of looked mm-hmm. at defining different levels of, of agreement yeah, and authority yeah. that were needed, and they had these different levels that they laid out. There's scriptural, there's confessional, there's the interpretations of a confession by a synod, and then there's pastoral advice. And it says the decision is has that weight that Synod decides it to have. Well, 2022 said that it was the interpretation of a confession, therefore it has confessional status, which yeah. in some ways, depending on how you look at it, may create a new category, <laughs> may confuse yeah. categories, um, or just may get confusing language because, as Patrick just said, the language of saying... Well, this is what the confession says. That's how we interpret it. And then, well, that does that mean that you're saying that it's in the status of an interpretation of a confession? Mm-hmm. For me, let me just kind of where that crux lay. In the end, I think we have to be able to answer two questions. Number one, when the catechism says that God detests all forms of unchastity, and someone says, well, what does that mean? We have to be able to say, well, here's what that means. You mm-hmm. can't do... And, and that's what we did last year. That yeah, unchastity... provided a list. Exactly. It includes things like... And this was one of the things we did change. I was glad about that. And the, we kind of clarified that this isn't a definitive list. It's more of an exemplary list. As to Paul say, often does in his letters when he's listing things. He'll give a not comprehensive list, but an example of different things that... Yeah. Exactly. That so what we did specifically that. mention was pornography, uh, yeah. abuse even within marriage, uh, homosexual sex, premarital polyamory. sex probably. Is that, was that in there? Premarital. And I don't even know if that was specifically. But again, I think that's where we say that's understood. Yeah. Right. Uh, it, it doesn't it, matter whether it's specifically in the list <laughs> exactly. or not. Exactly. Bestiality is not in there. Right, Incest right. is not in there. But again, we've always understood and we would all know that that's what the confession was saying at the time. Yeah. And so again, that fundamental question, well, what does that mean and what does it include? Mm-hmm. And I think rightly people said, well, it's people would have always understood homosexual sex to be in part of that. It's only been questioned in the Western church for the yeah. last, you know, 50-ish years, maybe less. Mm-hmm. The other question then is, and why do you think it says that? And that's where the hmm. fundamental question is. If you say it's confessional status, the reason why we can say unchastity has always meant this is because it's clear in Scripture, and this is what the confession itself has always been trying to say. Yeah. If you turn it into an interpretation of a confession, what you are saying is, well, it was the opinion of this particular synod that that's what it meant. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it's not as elevated in terms of its importance of ascribing to it, and it's much easier to undermine and change because the opinion of this synod might be different than from the opinion of that synod. Yeah. And so when we got to the crux of that issue, those who were more... And this is where I want to be very careful. I mean, I'll use the language of affirming because we've been using that, but I think that, that uh, assumes that 
the people who were, were pushing further than where they really were. They weren't fully affirming. A lot of people, and this is one of the differences, I think, between the two synods of 22 and 23, we've heard each other's stories a little bit more, and we've understood that you know, there were some conscious stricken people that say, I don't really know where I'm at, and I don't know how much room I have to wrestle with these issues mm-hmm. within the denomination. On the other side, I think there were other people that heard the stories and said, well, like, they're not just a backwoods ignorant person that just is homophobic. They have their own stories, and this has been hard, but we want to be clear about these definitions. But in, again, going back to the, the why, the, the side that was, again, I'll use the word affirming more, or that wanted to say, I'll just say the actual thing, that wanted to say it was an interpretation of a confession, were trying to pack behind that as much teeth, as much authority. So they had in their grounds, you know, you will be disciplined if you err, which is unique to put in the grounds of a, of a decision. Uh, yeah. That This is settled and binding, and it is something that's going hmm. to have an impact. And so they were trying to put as much of that into there. And then the majority report that I signed on was trying to say, this is the definition, but we want to be as we want to put this on the same level as much as we can on other things. And we don't want to elevate this to a, you know, something that's the super sin. Mm -hmm. Uh, We want to say, yes, this is what the definition is, but we have to act in this and treat it in the same level as we do other sins within the church. Yeah. And at the end of the day though, it has to do with the binding of the conscience. Right. So if I, if I say it's an interpretation of a confession, it's, it's settled and binding, I will not teach against it, et cetera, I'll be disciplined if I do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you don't go so far as to say confessional status, then I can still in my conscience disagree and still be okay. But if you say it's cast confessional status, that brings it over to the issue of uh, covenant, signing the covenant of office bearers, which says that I have to willingly promote, teach, you know, you know, love this doctrine. And if I don't, well, now my conscience is unsettled. Yeah. And, and so I think that them coming down and saying, no, it has confessional status and everything that Jade just said <laughs> is what it means. Uh, that means my conscience is bound and I cannot disagree uh, unless I can file a, a gravamen. <laughs> Which yeah. you get into the whole discus- discussion. Uh, can you intellectually disagree but conduct yourself behaviorally. Just never teach on it. Exactly. Mm. And if you do come across those passages, just kind of fluff on them a little bit. Well, this is the example I gave. Maybe not fluff, but just don't go into that. I'm talking to a a delegate at Synod who's torn on this, right? And I would say he falls more on the traditional side. Uh, and, and, And I said to him, I said, look, you are in a pastoral situation and somebody walks into your office and they say to you, hey, I've been struggling with same-sex desire my whole life. I've never told anyone. Um, you know, I went on a cruise this weekend, and I met somebody. Hmm. And um, I, I've never given expression to those desires in my life. I never thought I would, but I, I think I've met my soulmate. Um, what does God think of that? And, and, how should, and so now, all of a sudden, in a real-world scenario, hmm. there's no way that what you really believe about that issue is not going to come out in that moment. Uh-huh. no matter how much you say you're not going to teach against the confessions. So it, it's sort of like at the point. end of the day, an impractical, uh, it's an impractical posture to hold. And then, uh, you want to tell the story about that? Oh, the guy, what she said, the... the um, 
Yeah, so we had our young advisor. So we talk about all of this, uh, our youth advisor in our committee, and she's a trained psychologist, has degrees doing this work. Huh. And uh, It's quite the youth advisor. It was. Well, it, it goes she, up yeah. to 26. Exactly. Yeah. And I think okay. she was on the limit of that. But one of the things made a wonderful point. She said, in all of our unconscious bias training that I've ever done, we're told you cannot act in contradiction to your beliefs. If you have these beliefs, even unconsciously, they will come out. And so she made that point on the floor, and I affirmed that. It was interesting to hear that, but the point is well made. And then, so ultimately, I'm trying to put my shoes in, myself in the shoes of a listener right now, hearing us ramble on. <laughs> there is an important difference, fundamentally, between confessional status and the interpretation of a confession. And like most people, I think it's really hard to see those differences. Yeah. And admittedly, you hear some of the... Like, it does sound right. Well, didn't th- what they do interpret a confession? But using that language, again, lowers the level of authority that it has, the significance of it. And do we really want to go there? And I think our committee in the end, what Synod ended up deciding is saying, no, we have to let the confession speak for itself. And that was the decision it yeah. made last year, was saying, this is what our confession always has said, making explicit what was implicitly taught within it forever. And we will continue to say that's the status with which you have to affirm this as part of affirming the confessions. Yep. That's a really good, long explanation for it, for for people who are really wanting to know. And I think that's really helpful because, yeah, it's it's complex. As I was (laughs) even saying, my confusion... It sounds to me like it's it's sort of related to how the Supreme Court deals with the Constitution. Is it a living document that we can sort of interpret as an as a living thing that we can reinterpret as the generations go by, or must we read it in its original context? And so there were overtures last year. I remember in the agenda for Synod that were basically saying, "Look, it's clear that Ursinus, when he wrote the Heidelberg Catechism." meant by unchastity homosexuality but then there were a lot of overtures saying well it doesn't really matter to us what ursinus meant by that we have to read it in our own day uh giving given what we know now and that's that's really where the debate it seems to fall and this interpretation of a confession is that latter option whereas the reading ursinus in his own words is the more uh con- status confessionis sort of approach it seems to me we are getting a little bit long uh is there anything else we can we haven't covered? I'm trying to rack my brain here. Uh, what happened with the Gravamina or Gravamin thing uh, and Neyland Avenue? That's something that people will be curious to know. Yeah, so Neyland had made an appeal. Um, so last year, uh, an in loco committee was set up to sort of help Neyland comply with the decision that was made last year. And their, their way of dealing with that was just to appeal the decision. And so that appeal was denied uh, uh, by our committee. We said that they, they should have complied w- with the decision. Uh, and then um, we were actually going to go so far as to set up a new and local committee uh, to actually work with them uh, to, to repent. And the interesting thing is, is that Deacon actually finished her service in June. And, and so what, what we were asking for in terms of the repentance uh, was, was for breaking covenant with the denomination. What was interesting is that uh, some folks believed, uh, even if they, you know, even if they were unclear 
on their position of about whether or not it's possible to have a covenantal same-sex marriage and be within God's will, uh, they would still believe that that Neelan got ahead of the domination and therefore broke covenant with us, yeah. and, and is therefore needed to repent of if if not of their beliefs, they needed to repent of the breaking of covenant, hmm. um, and and that that got shot down at, at the floor. Um, and let me just say too, highlight the fact that technically the overtures that you were submitted were a little quite a bit harsher, quite frankly. You were looking at overtures that were disbanding a whole classes because yep. of their their inaction with relation to Neeland. You were dealing with ones that were, I can't recall if there were any that were asking for a, to depose. Yeah, there was that wanted us to set up a task force to figure out how to discipline entire churches or entire entire classes. Right. Um, there were there was some very strict discipline and yeah. and so even the majority recommendation I felt as someone who wasn't on the committee was substantially toned down from what they were actually asked to do by yeah. the overtures submitted mm. to the the synod. Yeah, I wonder if overtures are written with more of an extremist <laughs> sort of like here's how I absolutely want it to be. Oh, that's a whole no, other thing. I wish we could get into, but it, it won't happen like this. But I'm going to throw out the far thing. And I want to move it and yeah. the needle in this yeah. direction. Well, so. That seems again, to be overtures I would really on both love sides. To have here. a whole conversation about <laughs> overtures because it felt like there was frustration with how many we had to deal with, and it's yeah. interesting. People spend all this time and they encourage each other to write as many as possible to have the loudest voices possible coming. Yeah, but in the end. Because you have so many, you basically boil them down to like, well, mm. this is what this is asking, and the the important points that they spent developing and thinking get lost in out yeah. of necessity in all of less the, the overtures. Work. Maybe would be more less overtures with higher quality. Exactly, potentially. Uh. I have stumped on you th- though, Patrick. So keep going about what. So you recommended. Yeah, we recommended the discipline, and then there was a, a plea on the floor from Paul DeVries, who was the um, president. Uh, president of Synod. He was uh, not on, not acting in, as president because he was a part of the In Loco Committee last year. Exactly. So he had stepped down from his role as president, which meant that he was able to speak from the floor. Right, and yeah. he was given the privilege of the floor as a member of the In Loco Committee, too, so I'm not sure we're that... I, I, from what I can tell, he had the right to speak. Sure, yes, I yeah. think he did. Yeah, and uh, but he he had earned a lot of um, uh, gravitas. Gravitas, yeah. To bring that word back, yeah, gravitas yeah. throughout the week uh, as the as the president, and and he came in and he he basically said that, that this is not wise, that it was wrong, and that it was uh, punitive, um, and that and I think that that swayed the vote. Um, yeah, in that moment. We'll never know, really. We'll, we'll never know. Um, I, I think it would have been a good uh, decision to, to have that level of discipline for them because, again, it wasn't that much. It was, it was yeah. hey, r- repent publicly. Uh, Grand Rapids East helped them to repent. And if you can't do that, then you guys don't get um, uh, delegates at the Synod next year. Yeah. Um, but but there was still discipline to some degree put in place because there was another overture that wanted us. There's certain churches in the in the um, denomination that are openly uh, affirming, like on their websites or or they're they're part of all of one body or something like that. Mm-hmm. And and there was there was requests to like discipline them and and basically. Man, this gets it's hard to figure out how to explain all the nuance of it because Dave Dave's committee <laughs> had a lot of overtures about one real question. We had like yeah. a few less overtures about yeah. several more questions, right? 
So even when um, thinking about disciplining, there was one wanted us to set up a task force to figure out how to discipline a whole classes or discipline a church. And the reason was, was because, well, you know, it seems like they're out of line and Synod's the only one with the authority to do that. But in our polity, there's a real delicate balance between yeah. congregational authority versus the authority with the Synod. Mm-hmm. And, and we as a, a committee kind of decided, well, we think that the structures are all in place to do the right thing here, which is the classes are the one who are supposed to deal with the individual churches, yeah. uh, not not us. And so we just had a, uh, we had a recommend, and I think this passed, didn't it, where we recommended to the classes to to work with those churches. To, that did pass, yes. Yeah. And that was, and that included Grand Rapids East, and that included um, Neyland. So, so in some ways, they were they were told that they need to come in line in their beliefs uh, yeah. a- about what what our denomination believes and what Synod has said our denomination believes. So there was and some in their, teeth. Yeah, there was well, some in teeth. their appeal being rejected in many ways, I think we have to say 2022, the mandate to Grand Rapids East is now in effect. Again, whatever that ends up looking like, yeah. But something did that. Some of that work did actually make it, and things were approved. And so there is something out there, in some ways, that says they need to be worked with with other churches, yeah, to be brought into alignment of our yeah. confessional status, which again was reaffirmed, right. And then the, with the the Grovman issue, the, that had to get decided before a lot of the other things that we were going to, you know, there was overtures that, uh, you know, Synod had put out a frequently, uh, not Synod, um, uh, the denomination had put out a frequently asked questions about what a Grovman is, and they mm-hmm. took a very one-sided view of it, saying that, yes, hey, you know, this yeah. is a, basically a thing that you can file with your counsel and then have an indefinite exception to the mm-hmm. confessions. And, and had our definition of Grovman come through, um, then we were just asking them to put to, to correct the frequently asked questions. Uh, there was an issue with Calvin uh, College or Calvin University, uh, whether or not their professors can take exceptions to the confession. And uh, so Noah Tolley, uh, who's the provost, and uh, Weba Bohr came to our committee, and they just helped us understand that hey, actually on the academic side of things, there's a hundred year history of taking exceptions to the confessions at Calvin. Mm-hmm. Not only that, but they're dealing with issues of academic freedom. They're dealing with tenure, and it's just a little more complicated to impose strict subscription onto the professors at Calvin. And I was actually persuaded by that argument. Yeah. Uh, there's this little honorary part of me that wants to say like, well, no, they're part of our denomination. They should be in line with our confessions. But I was, I was, I was willing to see like, hey, look, this has been an issue that's discussed yeah. for many, many years. And college campuses are different than churches too. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly. Part of that mm-hmm. Interesting yeah. relationship that we have. So, so that seemed wise to me as well. Uh, there was a question about the COD. So, in the uh, what's the COD stand Council for? Council of Delegates. Council of Delegates. They're sort of like the synod light that meets throughout the year to get work done. Uh, well, they have they have people in the Council of Delegates who are taking exceptions. Well, we were going to ask them. One of our overtures was to ask the Council of Delegates to come in line with uh, our Grovman process. But of course, our Grovman process would have had to have been decided before we did that. And that was one of the big things of Synod this year, is that the Gravelman process did not get decided. Right, the correct. whole thing was kicked down the road mm-hmm. to yep. next year, really just because of time running out on Thursday, the final correct. day. Yep. Uh, there was a t- major time crunch. Some would say that it seemed like there was a, a, a uh, filibuster taking place. Some would say not. It's it's hard to know. We can't know people's hearts. And so that's not that shouldn't be part of our report. I just think that things did get... T- get right go along on Thursday, and that's just how it went. But therein, I think, getting to kind of 
closure and things, one of the fundamental things I think where we leave 2023 is in terms of definitions, we've once again reconfirmed what was said in 2022. The looming question is, what exactly are we going to do with those that, again, on their websites, in their actions, in their speech, publicly and privately, overtly say, we still want to be part of this denomination, but we do not and we will not act in conformance with those definitions that you've affirmed. And so that question still is looming because gravamen were not dealt with, and I think there is a question of how, in whatever we did with Neyland, is that going to bring them into alignment or anybody like them? Mm -hmm. That's where, so fundamentally, the big question is, in having defined these things, does the denomination have both the agency and the will to deal with people who are not going to act in conformity with those definitions. Yeah. And that's what I think is is what's lying in the future, is asking those questions. And this is where I want to get back to, I, through we did this training exercise, right? You make decisions that are by truth and authority, or that are more pastoral and community-based. And throughout this synod, there was this theme of moving up and to the right, which meant we were trying to make decisions you know, with each other, walking together in these decisions that have both truth and community held in balance. But the in relational the relational side think, and the principal side exactly. held together. But in the end, I walk away feeling like we ended up in the bottom left, where we neglected some of the work. And whether it was intentional or not, you can't help but wonder to a certain extent. But yeah, we, right. we didn't answer these questions that are out there. Uh, we kind of brushed it off and pushed it aside. And again, it's the bottom left corner that we ended up with. I can't help but say, like, I feel like as much as we were trying to get up to the right, we ended up where we didn't make these important decisions. Some of that is good. You know, I think now it sort of says, all right, the ball's in your court for those that disagree. What are you going to do with this? Yeah, they have a whole year. And uh, maybe they'll have some decisions and and wrestle with it, but who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's fundamentally where the big question is. Okay, yeah. we still have affirmed these definitions. How are we going to deal with those that disagree? Yeah, And I think there was some sense amongst the the real, I would say, conservative crowd uh, there that like, because this didn't get decided this year, I think there was this sort of sense of being deflated and like, okay, well, the CRC is just never going to decide these things because it didn't get decided this year, and this is what we always do. Um, but I would just encourage anybody who felt like that the day that they left Synod, that if you really stand back and look, uh, even though we were in the bottom left, I, ultimately, I still think that we moved the ball down the road in defining who we are as a denomination. Mm, yeah. We moved the ball down the road in saying like, hey, look, this is what we've believed. This is what we've always believed. This is, what, this is what's going to unify us, right? In the covenant of office bearers, it says that, uh, uh, that, that our doctrines locate us within the larger body of Christ. And I love that language because it's not saying that if you if you're not confessional like us that you're not a Christian. Mm-hmm. It's just saying that that this being confessional like this is what it means to be CRC. Yeah. And uh, and so I think that that sense of who we are is beginning to gain momentum. 
And, and there will be hard decisions that have to be made out of that. There will be practical realities that will, will flow out of that. But, but I want to encourage anybody who, who felt deflated to say, no, 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 no. We, this is, this yeah. is beautiful what God is doing in this denomination. And we have an opportunity to be a part of something really wonderful. How, how cool would it be to be the denomination that stays together, surround, uh, grounded on what we believe and have always believed, and, and then those who find that, hey, I'm outside of that, I'm located elsewhere in the body of Christ, or maybe I'm not, I don't even believe the same religion as you guys do, mm-hmm. uh, that, they, that they would either, that they would mostly self-select out, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and decide like, hey, look, I, I'm not really part of, of this, you know? Yeah. That would be beautiful. Yeah. I'm hopeful. Okay, that was actually my last question. Was yeah. <laughs> where you, if you were encouraged with the direction that the denomination took at 2023, and uh, and are do you think that twenty four is going to be just as important or more important than what twenty three and twenty two look like? But mostly, I want to hear it. Uh, and really, you answered my question. Yeah. What do you think, yes, Dave? But yeah. So uh, first of all, coming out of twenty twenty two, as much as it felt like yes, we achieved what or sell. Uh, it, we made some clear definitions, I should say. Whether or not you agreed with them is the yes part, but uh, we clarified some things. I I was very suspicious that the the it was only beginning, and that I think twenty twenty three confirmed that. I think twenty twenty four the definitions are more settled. The question now is uh, exactly again with the the will and what what do we do with those that don't af- agree and. I don't know. I, I don't listen to enough people or my ear isn't enough to the ground to really know what the, if you will, the strategy behind it was. I was surprised by some of the strategies from 2022 and 2023, which admits that there is a, there's a political side to all of this as well. And there are shared strategies and people. There's different lobby groups, essentially. That's what. And you have are. to acknowledge that reality. I don't pay attention to that very much, but it's a, abundantly clear that it's there. Mm-hmm. So there will be a strategy that emerges, whether it's the strategy that... Now, again, though, I think we've closed some doors. Mm-hmm. You can't any longer think that, well, this was just pastoral advice, mm-hmm. uh, what was claimed in the past. Yeah. Um, we've clarified that. And so it's going to be harder to throw up those test cases that will still continue to come and I think with clarifying these definitions two years in a row with a substantial uh, majority helps move us again. I want to see a denomination that knows who we are, hmm. that we can answer that question. What do you believe about that? And clarifies those things. And I think that that is going to be an attractive thing for people in a world that are asking questions. Mm-hmm. I was really impressed by the vast majority of the young adult representatives who are saying, we want an alternative answer to what the world is giving to us on these issues. Yeah, We want clarity. We want a voice in the Christian community that says, you're not defined by your sexual identity. You are defined by your relationship in Jesus Christ, and Christ, through the power of the gospel, can change you into his creation, whatever your particular sin struggle is. And that's where we have to proclaim that over and over again. And I think yeah. that message will draw a lot of people and be a very attractive people, yeah. to a younger Absolutely. generation that's saying, give us an alternative yeah. answer. Well, that's that's the gospel, right? It's that Christ will forgive you and transform you. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. yeah. When I think Gen Z, one of the defining characteristics of Gen Z and the younger generations has been that they are fed up with this kind of postmodern. I don't know what the answer is to anything. They want the firm answers. And one of the things that firmly attracts me to the CRC as a newer member, a newer pastor in the CRC, is that we have the, the confessions, we have the creeds, we have these firm answers, the handlebars that we can really hold on to and put our yeah. feet on the ground. And uh, I'm encouraged with the direction that just in my short time in the CRC that I've seen Synod take over the last two years uh, in, and I do think there's a lot of work to be done, but in defining who we are. And I hope that we can get there firmly. Yeah. I hope it doesn't take another 20 years, but. And what would be a really cool other podcast to do <laughs> is, is just to get into the more depths of the Gravelman thing, because I just even talking to people in my own church uh, so what Dave said this year, we just we have d- defined and those doors are shut. Well, next year, what we have to do is we have to make sure, I think, that, hey, and your conscience is bound by those decisions. That's what the Groverman thing will do. Yeah. And then moving on, you can begin to say, like, okay, now that this is what we believe for sure, it's confessional status, and your conscience is bound to believe it as an office bearer, uh, what does that mean for non-office bearers? What does that mean? And that's already kind of decided too, because you can struggle with it as a non-office bearer. Yeah. Um, but but how do we move forward with it? And the thing that I would love to discuss, and this is the thing that we don't have time for, what does that mean if I'm a Reformed Baptist? Can yeah. I serve as an office bearer? You know, what yeah. does that mean? You know, there's all kinds of other implications yeah. of it too. And that is, I'm reopening a door that's starting to close, <laughs> and I apologize for that. But that's when you read the overtures, right? The thing that you always had to remember with this is, yes, this is about human sexuality in this case, but what are the implications mm-hmm. when we get to other issues of conscience mm-hmm. right. and yeah. what I'm wrestling with? These things all and, touch on each other. And they yeah. do. Yeah. They and, each other. and so if we say, you know, you're not conscious bound by this, and and, and, and I want to be careful about even that language because, but, but what are the implications on all of these other areas, mm-hmm. right? And Again, what does it mean to be part of a denomination? We're still wrestling with that. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that we are. Same. Any other comments, thoughts, concerns, panic attacks? I don't know. That's what my old teacher used to say in There's high school. There's plenty, but not uh, you know, too I'm, long. Uh, ones, I'm content. I'm sure. I'm I think content. we've got most yeah. of it out there. We've reported on it and given some of our thoughts. And so I hope that for all those of who are listening, that this has been an edifying time, uh, an edifying hour and and plus uh and so if you have any other questions feel free to email me or lucas or or patrick or dave you can find our emails on our church websites and we'd love to field those questions and and wrestle through things with you um and so yeah thank you for listening thank you guys for for joining us and for being part of this yeah thanks for inviting us this is fun yeah we pray that it's it's an encouraging thing for all of you guys and we look forward to being with you again next time Until then, grace and peace.